This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. My name is Grace Fowler, and today we are talking about the opioid epidemic, mainly through the lens of the series Dope Sick, the documentary The Crime of the Century, and the book Dope Sick. I'm using all three of these sources, well, technically two sources, <laughs> uh, because the documentary The Crime of the Century and the Hulu series Dope Sick use the book, which the full title is Dope Sick, Dealers, Doctors, and the Drug Company that Addicted America. As a foundational source, uh, well, the series obviously is named after the same book, and the documentary Crime of the Century uses several books uh, and other works as foundational sources, including this one. And this book was published in 2019. The author's name is Beth Macy, and it's a pretty comprehensive look at essentially the origin of the opioid crisis from multiple perspectives. So from a medical perspective, a criminal justice perspective, a like personal interest perspective, and a kind of like sociological perspective of how a phenomenon like addiction moves through different communities. Uh, so I'm going to be mostly talking about the book as I just read it recently, and I think that it has a lot of really good information. Uh, all three of the pieces that I mentioned outline the opioid crisis and specifically the role of the Sackler family and Pardue Pharma in producing Oxycontin and its alleged role in the opioid crisis. I don't know if I have to say alleged. Uh, I'm going to every once in a while just to avoid any issues. But if you do watch, especially the book, the documentary Crime of the Century, uh, it goes into a lot more detail about kind of the legal pathways that have been taken to try to assign um, blame <laughs> for how the opioid crisis started. So if you're more interested in like that specific legal history, I do recommend the documentary, which is available on uh, HBO and it's like a two-part documentary. Uh, I recommend the documentary and the book. I don't recommend the Hulu series because in all honesty, I made it past two episodes. I didn't make it past two episodes. It was very boring and it's hard to follow along with what's real and what's not. Um, and I don't think it does as good of a job as notifying the audience that things are fake as some of the other series I've talked about like Inventing Anna there's a disclaimer at the beginning of every episode right that it's like based on a true story and some of it's made up I didn't get that <laughs> out of the Dope Six series and I found myself spending a lot of it googling to see if any of the people in the show were from the book because the book has a lot of like very personal stories I also it's kind of boring. Like, I'm not going to lie, as a docu, like, as a series, as a documentary, it's great because you could have people talking and, and experts and talking heads. But as a docu-series, like, or as a series, a fictional series, you're really just watching people be in pain and then use substances. Like, it, <laughs> it it's, it's very sad. Like, I was tearing up during the episodes that I did watch. Um, so if that's, if you're looking for more of the emotional pull, then I would recommend the series. I just personally thought it was very boring and hard to follow along. And the character that Michael Keaton plays is an amalgamation of like multiple 
doctors that he's like a doctor in a mining town he's an amalgamation of multiple doctors that have appeared in some of these other materials um and i think the that some of the real stories of real doctors especially found in dope sick the book are really fascinating and there's no reason to make up a fake one <laughs> uh, you could have them all like the real stories or at least some of them so i just i found that frustrating maybe that's because i read the book first um, so if you haven't uh, seen any of this, maybe you can start with the su- the series and, and work backwards. And I do think that there, like I mentioned, there's so many interesting stories in the, the book or the documentary. So why make up fake ones? And one of the examples I always think of is in the Crime of the Century, the documentary, are interviewing an older man who uh, talks about how he was targeted by a Purdue Pharma sales rep to be in a trial for a very high dose of Oxycontin. I don't remember how high it was, but I want to say it was like 180 milligrams. So each pill was 180 milligrams. Uh, And they selected him specifically because he had a history of heroin use. So he used heroin, which is also an opioid, before he was using, taking the pills to manage his pain. And they knew he had an incredibly high tolerance for opioids due to his history of heroin use. And the amount of pills that they gave him or prescribed to him, it took him 15 minutes every day just to finish taking them, his prescribed dose, because of how many they were prescribing him. And then the company used his case study to prove that you could prescribe high doses of an opioid with almost no consequences. Because this man didn't overdose. He didn't die. He was able to tolerate uh, all of that medicine, (laughs) all those opioids. And so then the company turns around and says, like, well, yeah, you can prescribe, like, thousands of milligrams worth of pills and it's fine. So they manipulated their data. Like, I think that story alone is compelling. So I don't think you need to make up fictional stories. But all that to say, mostly what I'm going to be talking about is the book. Um, And I want to go through some facts and quotes that I pulled from the book to really highlight um, what happens for, pe- for the individual and for a community when opioids are introduced and kind of why it's such a big deal that a pharmaceutical company was promoting these types of medications for people who uh, did not have a terminal illness. And you may be wondering, like, Grace, why are we talking about opioids on a psychology podcast? And one thing that I think is very important is that psychologists or mental health professionals in general can and should treat substance use disorders. I mean, they're in the DSM-5, if you're familiar with the book. We have a whole section on substance use disorders. Um, There are a lot of evidence-based treatments that mental health professionals are qualified to use that are work for substance use disorders and even opioid use disorders. Uh, And the, the world of substance use treatment shouldn't be relegated to just certain fields like substance use counselors right it should be a uh, should be a multidisciplinary uh approach to this type of treatment and i hear a lot from colleagues or people that i know are also in the mental health field i'll hear them say like oh well we don't treat substance use disorders that's for like aa or rehab like we we don't do that and i push back against that i think that's uh, false <laughs> i think that we can all treat substance use disorders we are trained to we have the ability to and that if you don't target uh, an addiction or substance use issue from multiple angles then you're never going to help the person to get relief from it so that's 
one of the reasons why I wanted to do this episode. I also wanted to talk about this episode, this issue in the context of Dope Sick is that it's quite the crossroads between the healthcare system, which includes mental health care, and the criminal justice system. Because the way that we've typically dealt with substance use, especially in this in America, is by incarcerating people, whether they're using or selling the drugs. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that as well in the context of this. And I thought that the book does a really good job of kind of tracking those different through lines and how different fields are invested in this issue in different ways. Uh, And I hope that that comes across in this episode. So before we dive too much into the book, uh, I want to give kind of a, a brief breakdown about opioids and how addiction can kind of take root, particularly with these substances. So this is this information is from a talk that Dr. Nora Volkow, the director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, gave in front of Congress on a panel about opioids. So I broke it down a little bit because she uses a lot of scientific language, which is important for her and her job, um, but I, I broke it down a little bit. So essentially, this is true for both prescription opioid drugs like OxyContin uh, and heroin or other types of non-prescription opioids. They work on the brain in the same way. So opioids reduce the perception or feeling of pain by binding to opioid receptors, which are found on cells not only in the brain, but also in other organs in the body. So the when the opioid is introduced into the body, usually through the bloodstream or the digestive system, uh, it binds onto these receptors all over the place. And essentially blocks the brain from perceiving pain by plugging into these receptors. Uh, They also plug into different areas of the brain. So there are some receptors that are in the reward region of the brain. So these are the parts of the brain that like reward us when we do something the brain wants us to keep doing, like eat a good meal. And so when the opioid plugs into those receptors, it makes us feel really good, Uh, kind of produces a sense of well-being. Now, there are opioid receptors in deeper parts of the brain, so down more toward like the brainstem, and when those get plugged in, they it can result in feelings of drowsiness and respiratory depression, which is the risk factor for overdose. And the reason this happens is because lower regions of the brain are typically in control of auto- unconscious or automatic processes like keeping your heart beating, keeping your lungs pumping, keeping you doing all the stuff that you need to do to stay alive, right? Uh, so when the opioid receptors get filled up in those areas of the brain, it slows down those processes, which unfortunately can lead to an overdose if the body is not able to keep breathing or keep the heart pumping. So essentially, opioids bind to different parts of the brain and bind to different organs all over the body. And when opioids bind to receptors in other tissues, that's when you may get the side effects of opioids that include constipation and cardiac symptoms. So you can have uh, opioids bind to receptors like in your heart or in your digestive tract, and that accounts for some of those side effects. Now, if you've ever taken opioids, which I have, uh, I was prescribed opioids after a surgery one time, you can get really constipated uh, and it really screws up kind of a lot of your internal systems. And that's not only because it's binding to parts of your brain, but it's also binding to your, your organs. That may have been too much information, but, you know, all, all in the name of self-disclosure, right? Uh, so another thing that Dr. Volkow talks about is that 
there are different subtypes of opioid receptors in the brain. And when different types of opioids lock on to those different subtypes, we get different approach, um, kind of outcomes. And the fact is, is that our own brains produce our own opioids that typically bind to our receptors and don't have the same effects as an external opioid. So your brain is manufacturing opioids probably now as you listen to this. Um, and will those internal opioids can lock onto our receptors and they're typically like not as potent as an external opioid because your brain is only producing like what you need for the moment. Some of the consequences of using synthetic opioids, so taking prescription pills or using substances like heroin repeatedly decreases the amount of the internal opioids, so our own brain's ability to produce opioids, that goes down, which can contribute to things like withdrawal. So in someone who has been using regular opioids, so maybe they've been taking Oxycontin for a few months or using heroin or fentanyl, if you stop the external, so the Oxycontin or the heroin, if you stop that, the brain isn't able to produce its own opioids in the same way that it had before you started using that substance. So not only are you now not having the same level of opioids as you would with just the Oxycontin, you now don't have your baseline from before use because your brain isn't producing its own opioids because there were there was no need because those receptors were getting filled. So that's part of why the withdrawal in opioid use can be very painful and very difficult uh, because now we've, we're not able to produce our own opioids to fill in those receptors uh, and the, the body is essentially like starving for it. And that's why the book and the series are called Dope Sick is that there is a, th that term dope sick is used to describe the kind of unique symptoms that occur when someone has withdrawal from opioids. And you may have seen this in people or have read about it. But some of those things can include like uh, a runny nose, tearful eyes, gastrointestinal symptoms, so maybe having diarrhea, an upset stomach, vomiting, uh, and there's also a risk of respiratory distress and cardiac distress. And if you think about what we just talked about, where those other receptors are in other organs of the body, when the person is no longer able to put in those external sources of opioids, those receptors all over the body are now empty and are reacting and sending the message of like, hey, we need something to plug in here. Uh, we're not able to work the way that we were before. So that idea of dope sickness is how a way to describe kind of the unique and very painful type of withdrawal that people who have used opioids may experience, uh, which is part of why it becomes such an addictive substance because the person then is trying to do anything they can to not feel dope sick because it's, it's really awful. And if you've ever seen anyone going through it, it's, it's very painful to watch. And you can tell uh, that they're in a lot of pain. And so you can understand why you get stuck in a cycle of addiction of anything that I can do to make this feeling go away, I will do. And even if that means using again, it, it's what I got to do. So now that we kind of understand how opioids work, you know, broadly, uh, I'm going to go through some of the statistics that uh, Macy writes about in the book and some of the things that I learned and I found were interesting. I also do want to say that I have worked with people who have been struggling with opioid use, uh, and so I, I do feel that I might be a little biased <laughs> about this topic because I've seen 
the damage that this type of substance does to someone's body and emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being. And I would encourage you, if you are using an opioid, to seek help, medical and mental health help for any symptoms that you may be having of withdrawal or wanting to cut down on use. And if you are not using an opioid, I highly Again, this is my opinion, <laughs> uh, but and you know, always consult with your doctor about other options, or, or or consider other types of recreational drugs because the damage that this substance can do to people is incredible and incredibly scary, and and that's the bias that I'm bringing into it, and so I just want to acknowledge that. Um, but I, I think I'd rather be on the safe side <laughs> and, and what I've learned about this drug and what I've seen in my experiences have, I think, biased me <laughs> toward that. And I'm okay with having that bias. Uh, so let's dive into some of the things that the book talks about. So one thing that was really interesting that I learned from reading Dope Sick was kind of the history of essentially opioids in America and kind of throughout the world. So morphine is like the precursor of most opioids like morphine was kind of like the first and this is going to be a a, a real light summary because i'm not a historian <laughs> um but May macy talks about in the civil war uh morphine was used like it was cough syrup like ev everybody was getting morphine because in in the american civil war um it, it, types of injuries that people experienced were truly horrific and one of the fastest things that doctors could do to help their patients who were soldiers was to give them morphine um, because then they would just not be in pain as you're trying to like saw off their leg with a rusty saw in the middle of the battlefield. Like it's, if you, it's nasty. Uh, and morphine became very popular in that time because it was an easy way to help soldiers in the moment when doctors were really overwhelmed on the battlefield. Uh, unfortunately, as the war ended, and these soldiers who lived went back home and were no longer on the battlefield, uh, they had a lot of issues not having a steady stream of morphine. And it became something called morphinism or soldier's disease, which was essentially you had a generation of people who, well, a generation of like adult men, essentially, who were withdrawing from opioids. They no longer had morphine and they had become dependent on morphine and now were withdrawing. And so pharmaceutical companies in like the 18, 1900s had to figure out a way to cure this soldier's disease, which was essentially morphine withdrawal, and began to market and sell pill forms or essentially synthetic, oh, oh, synthetic opioids. And Bayer Laboratories was one of those first companies to sell this type of pill. Bayer is a German company and so this became kind of like a, a more worldwide like other places were using this synthetic opioid as well. Um, and so that was kind of the first time that opioids reared their heads and Macy talks about how at that time when everyone began to realize that like this soldier's disease this morphinism was due to the role of morphine they uh kind of the public reaction to it and even like the political reaction to it was like oh well we can't have <laughs> morphine right like we can't uh prescribe this willy-nilly right we need to be careful with this so there was like a way of regulating and then as uh 
new forms of the drug came out, people would prescribe it again. It was like a miracle drug. It was another type of opioid, and then it would need to be regulated. And so history kind of goes in these cycles. You know, history repeats itself <laughs> um, in regards to morphine or opioids in general. And this is not the first epidemic that even America has had of opioids. And we need to remember that as we get through this current epidemic of opioid use. So learned in this book where the term junkie comes from. So if you've ever heard that, it's kind of a derogatory term to refer to someone who uses substances, especially like opioids or heroin. And the term junkie was created when inner city users, so in more urban areas, people started using heroin. And in order to support their habit, they would collect and sell scrap metal. Whereas the respectable upper and middle class opium and morphine addicts had kind of died out, like opium, especially as we moved into like the 80s, right? The 1980s, like no one's doing opium anymore and no one's getting morphine in the way they were in the early 1900s. It was, we were moving into uh, the only accessible way of getting it was heroin. Uh, And so the idea of like who uses this substance became tied to, well, only people in the inner city, um, who are criminals because they're they're doing like petty theft there's still anything to support their habit whereas people in the suburbs who struggled with addiction were um maybe not as prevalent or not paid attention to because they didn't fit into the narrative and i think macy does a pretty good job throughout the book of kind of painting people struggling with addiction in a different light and being very very acutely aware of how we talk about different groups of people that are struggling with substance use issues um, and she really paints a pretty clear picture of how uh, urban city populations that are typically black and brown people get painted as like criminals or seen as bad people, inherently bad people because they use drugs, whereas rural or suburban, typically white users of substances get seen as people who have a sickness, people who need help. Uh, And there's a pretty big disparity between how we talk about those different groups in the culture at large, even though they're using the same drugs or they're using the same substances and having the same effects uh, on their bodies and lives. uh, It's just that the color of their skin or where they live determines how we view them. So I I think that's a highlight for me of the book is how Macy does a really good job of making it clear where those distinctions come from and how it, it makes it harder for everybody to get treatment. So one of the reasons why Americans and America may struggle the most with this particular type of issue is uh, our inability to deal with pain without medicine. So I know I have some listeners that are from other countries, and I would love it if you could write in and maybe share if you have any experiences with how pain is treated in your countries. But in America, for quite a while, pain was treated as the fifth vital sign. And what this term means is that uh, on top of vital signs like your heart rate and your oxygen level, like are you breathing and your heart is pumping, pain was considered to be a way to say, it, you know, how dire of a situation is this person in. It's one of the vital signs, right? And so high levels of pain meant that the person was in, in distress and that that needed to be treated. And we're in America, we're just so Western that we don't like to think about alternative types of treatment. We really rely on very strict definitions of Western medicine, which is largely surgical intervention and medication. 
And so there are other countries, and in the, in the book, Macy mentions New Zealand, where hospitals will prescribe things like physical therapy, biofeedback, or acupuncture, or even just anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen as the first step in pain management. But American insurance companies will not pay for those services. Or if they do, it's going to be a big like amount of work for you to get those services covered. American insurance companies will cover opioid pills because it's cheaper because it's it's a not intended to be like long-term care where whereas like if you're paying for biofeedback like you're that's that's a big chunk of a cost and you may be paying that for a while. Um and it's considered quick so that you can get in and out. Doctors can see more people in a day if all they have to do is prescribe an opioid because you complain of pain. So th- this is where all of the I think the opioid epidemic stems from in America is this like inability to rationalize with pain or to treat it with any other methods. And I'm and I I want to be clear that I'm not saying if you experience chronic pain or you're if you've ever been in any type of pain that you would need medication for that it doesn't mean that you're a bad person or that it was the wrong choice to like take the medication. The problem is is that the way in which insurance companies manage care in America doesn't allow for doctors to be creative and work with patients on an individual level. There may be some people who really benefit from acupuncture. There may be some people who really benefit from physical therapy and strengthening certain muscles. And there may be other types of intervention, including types of therapy and mindfulness techniques that can help someone to manage their pain that takes a little bit of time, but is a long-term solution for that person and is less damaging to their life than prescribing them a handful of opioids to take at any time. So uh, it's not an issue of like, if you've ever gone through this, like that you shouldn't have, (laughs) but it is an issue of the way in which American healthcare does not allow doctors to truly individualize treatment plans. And if you are from a place where you don't have to deal with this type of insurance company, this may sound uh, unfathomable. Like that, oh, you just like line up to get a, a, a bunch of pills. Yes, that is actually what's happening in some of these places is you just line up to get your pills. Nobody takes the time to get to know you, to know your history. You may not even see the same doctor for more than two times in a row. Like it, it's pretty dire. And I personally think that that is one of the biggest contributors to why the opioid epidemic has remained for so long in this country. Now, one of the reasons why Uh, opioids became so popular. So if you're not familiar with how Oxycontin came to be, uh, again, the the documentaries will give you, the documentary and book will give you a much better idea of this. But in quick summary, Purdue Pharma is a pharmaceutical company owned by the Sackler family that had produced this drug that was for terminal cancer patients. So people who had cancer that were most likely not going to recover or be successful in treatment and were at the end of their lives. And they were given these opioids to relieve them of their pain in their last moments, which makes sense because it's an, it's an immeasurable amount of pain and this person or the cancer patients may not have had long to live. So the, the, be- the cost benefit of giving someone a pretty heavy opioid at that stage of life it's more in favor of making sure that the patient is comfortable. Now, the um, patent was up <laughs> on this drug, and this is, like, so American. Like, it's, like, making me cringe how American it is, and I'm from this country. The patent was up on the first drug that they had made, 
and they didn't want to lose out on the amount of money that they would make by having a patent on this type of medicine. So they revamped their patent and they they developed OxyContin. And the cotton is the system that Pard- Purdue uses, which is a time lapse uh, system. So I'm not a medical doctor, but essentially what I've learned about this is the cotton system that Purdue developed means that the medicine that you take in the cotton system doesn't all immediately digest and dissolve into the bloodstream. It, it's time release so that the patient has a longer effect of the drug. So they, they apply this, they create OxyContin, and then they realize if we're going to make any money off of this, we can't just sell it to people who are dying from cancer because that's not a very big population. So we need to start marketing this drug to chronic pain. Chronic the term is chronic non-malignant pain. So it's not end of life associated pain. So this means everything from if you've been in a car accident and maybe hurt your neck, uh, you have some sort of job where you do a lot of intensive labor and you hurt your back, anything like athletes getting injured, anything, any type of pain that is going to impact the person for a significant amount of time, let's get doctors to prescribe OxyContin. And how do you do this? How do you get doctors to prescribe a drug that was previously used for cancer patients and get them to prescribe it to anyone and their grandma. And part of that is that they spent billions of dollars on advertising. And from in 1995, when the drug was first coming out, they spent $360 million on drug advertising. Three years later, after the drug had been on the market for a while, in 1998, they were spending $1.3 billion on drug advertising. And they sold, and, and a lot of that um, money went to paying for doctors to get free stuff. So if you've ever been to your doctor's office and seen like those, like all the pens will be like branded with a drug uh, or they'll have like posters for certain drugs in the doctor's office. And again, this is a uniquely American experience. Uh, that is free stuff that came from these drug companies that the sales reps leave behind to convince the doctors to prescribe their specific uh, brand of drug. And in the case of OxyContin, there was only one type because they had a new patent. You couldn't get a generic version of OxyContin at this time. So it, so the drug comes out like 1995. They've ramped up spending in 19, into 1998, they're spending a billion dollars on, and it's not just giving them free pens. They're giving, they're taking doctors to like steak dinners and vacations and paying for retreats. And they would hire doctors to be speakers to go convince other doctors to prescribe this drug and pay them a handsome sum of money for that. Like that billions of dollars is going into all of this stuff. It's not a billion dollars worth of stupid pens, which I think would be really funny and a waste of money. Um, but as they're ramping up, we hit 2001, they've now made $1 billion off of sales off of just OxyContin, which was more than Viagra, which if you're not familiar with, is a medicine to treat erectile dysfunction. So they've now sold more OxyContin than they have Viagra. That's like, that's wild because you could take Viagra and not go into withdrawal, right? Like Viagra, whatever you may think about Viagra. It's not as addictive. I don't think you can get addicted to it. I don't know. But it's not an opioid. And they've made a billion dollars selling opioids to people who did not need them. And the reason why 
Purdue Purdue Pharma. I always want to say Purdue, but it's Purdue Pharma. The reason why they should be held responsible more so than they have been in the past is that they knew this drug was abusable and they lied. <laughs> so the the drug comes out in 1995, right? That's when the drug first hit the the market. And Purdue says, well, we didn't know that the drug was being abused until February of 2000, even though the drug came out five years ago. But in 1995, the company had done a review that they had submitted to the, I think it's the FDA who like regulates it, but the, the drug part of the FDA. Uh, they had submitted this, re- this review that said you could crush tablets. So if you crushed the Oxycontin tablet, you got an immediate release rather than the time lapse. So you could get high because uh, you, you can't get high off of the cotton pills. Well, not that you can't, but it just it's not as intensive a high because you're not getting all of the substance at once. You're not getting all the opioid at once. But if you crushed it, it dissolved the time lapse capsule or like coating. And so you could snort or inject it and get a much more potent and quicker sensation. They also had found that there had been withdrawal symptoms witnessed during clinical trials. So when they were trying out OxyContin with small clinical trials, there were people who were taking the OxyContin regular, so not crushing it and trying to use it off-label, but were using it as prescribed that had withdrawal symptoms, which is not supposed to be happening at all with this type. Oh, that's what Purdue was saying. They said, it's oh, there won't be any addiction or withdrawal, but people were. And 68% of the drug was recoverable from one single crushed up pill when the person liquefied and injected it. So not only could you crush it to get more high, but you could get over half of the substance out of the pill after you crush it up, which Purdue said was impossible. And they had some number they kept throwing around that was like only 1% of less than 1% of patients will get addicted. And that just like categorically wasn't true. And they did know that they had this data from 1995 when the drug first came out. So all of that to say, and let me just throw an allegedly in here. (laughs) All of that to say is that Purdue produced a drug that was a potent opioid that was supposed to be for people at the end of their lives who were in immeasurable pain. And because they wanted to make more money, they patented and sold this drug to everyday people who did not have a chronic or terminal illness. And it, the entire time, it was addictive. And they kept lying. For five years, they lied and said, it wasn't addictive. It can't possibly be addictive. We, like, we made sure it's not us. It's like, it's you gross people who are abusing it. Like, that's essentially the, the messaging that was coming for Purdue. And that's part of why I, I feel so passionate about this topic or feel I why I get so angry is that there was evidence that this drug was addictive, that it was not appropriate for the use that they were saying. But because they were making money off of it, they didn't stop doing this and that doctors were prescribing this and didn't stop prescribing it. There, I mean, there are a lot of people who are responsible for this, but I think you have to start at the top with the people who made the drug and knew from the beginning that the drug was addictive. And Again, not a medical doctor. This isn't my area of expertise, the medical side of it. But you have to be able to give people informed consent about what they're signing up for. So if you go into your doctor's office tomorrow and they tell you, we have a miracle pill that will cure all of your pain, 
and they don't tell you about any side effects, are you going to take that medicine? Obviously, because you've just been told it will cure all of your pain and there'll be no problem. Now, if you went into the doctor and they said, we have this pill that does a really good job of curing pain or helping with pain, but you're going to be constipated, uh, you're going to have heart problems, you may overdose, and you might get addicted to it, you might change your mind about taking that pill if you have the informed consent. We talked about this in the Squid Game episode, right? Informed consent means that the person knows what they're getting into, risks and benefits, and you have to let the individual person weigh the risks and benefits for themselves before they enter into any type of treatment. And you can't do that when the manufacturers of the drugs are hiding it. So let me run through a few more statistics and facts that I learned that I think help paint a picture of how bad the opioid epidemic is and how people need help and that it it's important for us to view it as a condition that needs treatment and not a crime or uh, like a moral failure. So first of all, I did not know this, but I learned from the book that Rudy Giuliani was involved in helping to convince public officials to approve of Purdue's drugs. So if you think about the timeline, in 2000, so remember, the drug comes out in 1995. 1998, they're spending a billion dollars on advertising. 2001, they're making a billion dollars off of the drug. However, in 2000 is when these reports start to come out that people are getting addicted to the drug and having withdrawal symptoms. So 2000 kind of starts some of the, the rough waters for Purdue and the Sackler family. So in 2001, 2002, right after, literally right after 9-11, they enlist Rudy Giuliani to come like talk to people in the government and be like, you should really approve this opioid. It's like really good for you. And they were like, specifically using Giuliani because at that time he was, you know, quote unquote, America's mayor and had just weathered a horrific terrorist attack in the U.S. like as a mayor. And so they used his reputation to get officials to kind of sign on to and and agree with Purdue's like phony reports, Uh, which I think is insane that Rudy Giuliani is at the heart of so many American tragedies and scandals. And I'm not counting 9-11, but I'm talking about like the Trump presidency and him being involved in so many scandals there. And now he's popping up in the opioid crisis. And it's like, hey, man, just just take a break. You know, maybe you don't need to be involved in everything. I don't know. I found that absolutely fascinating. Anyway, less less fun fact is that in 2019, the likelihood of an American person dying of an accidental opioid overdose was higher than the likelihood of dying in a car crash. So for accidental overdose, it was every one in 96, it was a one in 96 chance of death. And in a car crash, it's a one in 103 chance. And that was a, as of 2019. It might be different now, um, but it, it was catching up uh, up to 2019. And that just shows the prevalence of opioids, that more Americans are susceptible to accidental overdose death than a car crash. The kind of overall addiction rate for this uh, prescribed opioid or these types of opioids is probably about 56%. So 56% of people that are prescribed an opioid like OxyContin are going to get addicted. And that that's 
that's a huge number. Remember, Purdue was saying less than 1%, but the reality is that it's 50, probably 56%, if not a little bit higher, of people who are going to get addicted to the opioid. And, and then think about that massive amount of people now needing additional support and treatment because not only do they have chronic pain that still needs to be treated, but now they're likely to have an opioid use disorder. So we've just, instead of solving one problem, we've now created two. Between 1998 and 2005, the abuse of prescription drugs increased uh, 76% by 76%. So in the, the, that time, in those years, OxyContin was available and on the market. And the abuse, so not just the pre- prescription of it, but the abuse of it, increased over 75%. That's a huge amount of people using these drugs in a way that they're not intended. I think the one thing that I just want to impress upon in this episode is that these are large amounts of people who are impacted by these drugs and these addictions. It's not just the little town in West Virginia or like the urban center of Baltimore, right? It's, I mentioned those because they're mentioned in the book. Um, it's, it's everywhere. It's prevalent. Like, large amounts of people are impacted by this. I see it here in Los Angeles. You may see it in the city that you live in and the place that you live in. Um, it, it's happening to lots of people and it's happening to too many people for us to still be thinking about it as a moral failure, right? Like something else has to be, has to be going on. Uh, and one thing that I thought was super interesting in this book was the author was talking about kind of why people who are addicted to opioids or struggle with opioid use may not be able to weigh the consequences of their actions in the moment. Uh, she, she was talking about this research done by somebody named Bickle who was attempting to kind of quantify how somebody's perception of the future may influence their choices in, in the now. And so in his in their research, they found that the average like non-addicted person, so someone who's not struggling with substance use, opioid use, their perception of the future is about 4.7 years into the future. So about five years into the future, if you're not addicted, you're kind of imagining your, your life out to about five years. Someone who's addicted to an opioid, their idea of the future is nine days. Nine days is their average idea of the future. That is mind-blowing. Nine days into the future. I want you to think about what that would mean for your life if you could only think about nine days in the future. Would you maybe make choices that put you on the bad side of the law or alienate your family and friends if you thought, well, I can really only fathom myself being here for nine more days rather than five years? It would drastically change the choices that you're making if you can't see far enough into the future to weigh the conse- the long-term consequences of your actions, right? Nine days is not long. That's like, that's less than two weeks. I, I was just bl- blown away by that when I read it. And, and I think for me, that helped click into this understanding of why someone who's addicted to the substance would have so much trouble doing things like to get sober or to help themselves get more stable. Because if you're in this addiction, you're in this this space, this this state of mind, 
this physical and, and psychological state, you literally cannot think farther beyond two weeks. And so, of course, you're not going to make decisions that help you get stable in the long term because you can't even fathom that that even happening or that that playing out. And and for me, that really just clicked. And I think I wanted to really share that as a, a way of thinking, like, not only do these drugs impact the body but and, and the brain, like, physically, like, because it's mapping onto the brain, it's changing the way in which people are even perceiving time and perceiving their own lives. And if you haven't had the experience of being addicted to one of these substances, you know, we're never going to know what that feels like. But this gives us a little bit of an extra insight and may make it seem like why someone who's uh, addicted to opioids is going to make choices that maybe don't seem so moral or upstanding. They're not thinking that far into the future. What would you do if you only had two weeks, right? If you only thought you were going to be here for two weeks, like, you might do some you might do some wild stuff, right? You might not follow all the rules. Additionally, the book talked about how drug users are arrested four times more often than those who sell drugs. So it's the people who need the most help that are struggling to see into their future that are getting arrested more often than the people who are supplying the drugs. And I, I'm going to be honest, I don't necessarily support using the criminal justice system to deal with substance use, whether it's from the, the using or selling side, but particularly not the using side. Uh, But it's incredibly imbalanced if drug users are getting arrested more often than the people who are selling them the drugs. And this, again, I think is related to like not being able to see far into the future and having this dope sickness of like having to chase your next high because you will physically be sick, too sick to get up and go move around if you don't get your next score. Uh, And they, they also talked in the book about people then starting to use meth in between their heroin or opioid pills. And meth keeps you going enough to get you, get you to the next score to keep you from being dope sick. So this is how people end up using more than one drug. And if you pair that with like the fear of being dope sick because it's so awful with this like limited future perception, then yeah, you're going to make some desperate choices and Maybe make a choice like I'm going to use meth in between using these opioids because it's going to get me through this. It's going to get me to a point where I'm okay and I'm not like literally throwing my guts up. So we've learned a lot of sad things about opioids. What do we do about treatment? And I like that the book focused on examples of treatment that works, but was also very realistic about how often treatment can fail. And the literature shows that if you can be sober from opioids for one year, you will have a 50% chance of relapsing. If you can stay sober for five years, your chance of relapse goes down to 15%. And so that means that within the first year of sobriety, one in two people are going to relapse from that back to using opioids. But if you can get to five years, the number of people who will relapse becomes much smaller. So it's hard. It's hard in the beginning to become sober from an opioid use disorder. But there is hope. It's not a hopeless case. The longer you can work at it and and be sober, the more chance you have to get better. And in fact, because of that five-year plan, uh, that is probably the best, or that not that five-year plan, but the, that five-year number. It's best that people be on a treatment plan for five years minimum. 
And the book mentioned that for doctors and pilots that struggle with opioid use, they are put on a five to seven year plan. And those plans that they go through, the treatment plans they go through, have a 70 to 90 percent efficacy rate. So it's to get treatment for an opioid use disorder, for it to be effective, it needs to be long term and it needs to be intensive. Uh, uh, NIDA also supports this. Their literature says that long-term maintenance, especially medication-assisted treatment, uh, with behavioral treatment and support are the best practice. And medication-assisted treatment, which is kind of controversial out, out here in the, in the world, especially in the U.S., medication-assisted treatment is when you are giving somebody who has an opioid addiction, you're giving them a different form a less addictive form of an opioid to manage their cravings. And you may have heard of naloxone, naltrexone, or suboxone. And I think, oh, buspirone. Those are all uh, medication-assisted treatments that are useful for people with opioid use disorders. And the reason why we need medication-assisted treatment is that people who have an opioid addiction are likely to have severe withdrawals which can lead to death and they they cannot be withdrawing without support it's it's like really dangerous and it's also really painful for the person which can trigger a relapse right because you're going to be desperate to to get rid of this so medication assisted treatment is so necessary but it is incredibly hard to get in this country where we are very comfortable prescribing pills to people who have low back pain but not comfortable prescribing pills to people who have a substance use disorder, even though the research shows that it is effective. Now, it's important that the NIDA says in the context of behavioral treatment and recovery support. So that means if you're on a medication-assisted treatment or a MAT, which would be like Suboxone, it is vital for you to also be in some type of therapy, which would be the behavioral treatment. This is why I say it is a multidisciplinary problem, right? Like we need doctors who are willing to prescribe these medications and work with patients. We need mental health professionals who are willing and able to give the behavioral treatment. And then we need recovery support, which includes things like social support, having support groups, having your family and friends involved. It does not necessarily mean a 12-step program, but it means having people around you who are not only supportive of you, but are also dedicated to your recovery, right? That are not trying to get you into a situation where you would relapse, right? Or supporting you. And so the NIDA is saying we need all of these things at the same time, which is why at the beginning I was saying it's so important that this is a mental health issue, right? That even if some of the treatment is not fully something that a mental health professional can do, mental health has to be involved. The behavioral treatment has to be there and has to help people to work together with medication and other types of support so that they're no longer experiencing uh, such powerful cravings or withdrawal. Now, the research also shows that 12-step programs and abstinence-only rehabilitation programs are not effective. And one of the reasons that they're not effective, especially for the opioid use disorders, the, the literature may be different for other types of disorders, but for opioid use disorder, it's not effective. And the reason is, is that one, they're not standardized. So you could go to rehab on the East Coast and then fly to the Midwest and then fly to the West Coast and go to different rehabs in between. And none of them are guaranteed to be using the same standardized program. 
or standardized treatment. There's no guarantee. They don't have to abide by any standardized set of practices, any evidence-based treatment. You may have, if you're familiar with those like celebrity rehab shows where you go in for like 28 days and you ride a horse every day, like that's not a standardized treatment and that's not accessible to everyone, right? If you live in like the middle of Kansas, you're not getting onto a horse. Well, you might if you live in a farm, but you're not coming to like Malibu to go to rehab where you're getting a massage and a horse ride every day. You're getting locked in a dingy facility for 28 days to try to sweat it out. And that's not evidence-based treatment and it's dangerous and abstinence-only treatment is not the only way to go about it. And you can't do abstinence-only treatment if you're on like Suboxone. You, you just can't because you have to take the Suboxone as part of your treatment. They're, they're not super affordable, the, like especially these rehabs where there's no like consistent regulation over what they can charge. Like then you get the insurances involved. Like people are spending thousands of dollars on these, these places. Uh, and they don't work. Like what are you, you're not paying for anything because they don't work. People go in and out of rehabs for opioid use disorders on like a, a revolving door and they're struggling. And a lot of these rehabs won't allow you to be on Suboxone when you go there. So you can't get the full multidisciplinary type of treatment that you need. And one of the reasons why like just a short-term residential stay, like a 28-day residential stay, is that the the impact that these drugs have on your brain can't go away in 28 days. So according to someone named Lloyd quoted in the book, it takes 90 days for the frontal lobe to come back online after you quit using, and it takes two years to be fully functioning. It can take up to two years. So the part of the brain that's involved in, in, in the frontal lobe is in charge of like judgment and insight. So your ability to meaningfully engage in treatment doesn't come back online until 90 days after stop, stopping use. So what's a 28-day rehab going to do, especially if you do it right when you, when you get off the drug? There's not enough time, and that's why you need the time. You need the, the five to seven years, like commitment to treatment, support the entire time, and access to medication. And it's not a perfect solution, right? There's going to be relapses. People are going to struggle. Not everyone will fit into every type of treatment that's available. But we have to do something different. We can't just continue to think about opioid use as a moral failing or as something that only happens in faraway places and doesn't affect the people around you. Given the numbers that I've shared with you today, it's affecting a huge amount of people. And it may be affecting people in your life that you don't know about. It's not only affecting their bodies, it's affecting their brains, it's affecting the way that they even perceive time and the people around them, and it's killing people. People are dying because of accidental overdoses or even intentional overdoses because they can't imagine a world, a future where they aren't experiencing this horrible pain and horrible like withdrawals, right? That nine days into the future doesn't give you much to work with when you're, you're feeling the way that you might feel when you're withdrawing. And I say all of this because I hope that you can change your perspective about how you consider substance use. That people who use drugs are not inherently bad people. They're not any different than anyone who doesn't use drugs. And that it's not a, a choice. Like, it's not always a choice to use more. That 
part of the brain and the body has become hijacked by a substance and it's become it's come out of control and we was signing up for this like withdrawal dope sickness cycle and to be quote-unquote cured or stable or in recovery doesn't require you to white knuckle it through abstinence or through you know non-medication assisted treatment it, it doesn't require that and so if you or a loved one are experiencing this kind of trouble this kind of substance use I really encourage you to reach out for help whether that's to your doctor your mental health professionals, even a support line, anything to get the ball rolling and know that it doesn't make you a bad person if you you can't just walk away from it today. Everything is set against you if you've been using and have become addicted. Your, Your body is literally against you. And even if I'm the only person you hear say it, you're not a bad person. You have an illness, you have a disorder that needs treatment, and you deserve that treatment. And everyone deserves access to that treatment if they're going through this. And whether you're in a country where people do already have access to that or you're in the U.S. with me where people don't have widespread access to that, it's something that everybody deserves. And I hope that we can all carry that with us as we kind of move forward from this topic. Um, I know that this was kind of a heavier topic. Um I think it is still relevant today, even though some of the the data from the book is a little old. I do encourage you to watch or read the sources that I talked about at the beginning. There's a lot of really great information and a lot more about the legal and medical side that I'm not as qualified to talk about. Um, But I hope that you enjoyed it and I hope that you were able to learn something. And I ask that if you have any input, any feedback, uh, you know, you should shoot me a DM on Twitter, on Instagram, or send an email at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, and as always, there's resources on the website if you want to find a way to start maybe asking for help or figuring out what your options are. Um, thank you for sticking with me to the end. I appreciate it as always, and I will see you in the next one. Bye-bye. To see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode, visit psychologicallymindedpod.com or click the link in the show notes. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you and see you in the next episode.